We had a, a whiteboard at one point in our office with a list of all of the women who had worked at the Weinstein Company in Miramax over the years, and we were calling them. We were trying to get people to go on the record and talk to us about what had happened to them, and we just were not able, despite all the resources that we had devoted to it, we weren't able to get people to go on the record. Welcome, friends, to Exec Producer. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into one of your favorite shows from the point of view of both the producer who dreamt it up and the executive who championed it. Where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in selling it, and ultimately, how it made it to air and into popular culture. I've worked as an executive at four separate networks, and I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of television. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy. And please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. Okay, we are rolling. Um, apologies in advance if I whisper at all, but... <laughs> you don't guest, have to whisper. Our guest son is actually asleep upstairs. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm going to be polite here. But here I am in the beautiful... West Side, I'm not going to give away the exact neighborhood. Please don't. But West Side. I have side, many, many enemies. <laughs> West Side home of Matt Bellany, the editor of The Hollywood Reporter. Hi there. Hey, Matt. How are you? Thank you for being on the show. No problem. Yeah. I will not be using my inside voice. So you can <laughs> you can whisper, but I will be speaking at normal volume. Okay. But, uh, but, you know, Matt is, as I mentioned, the editor of The Hollywood Reporter, but he's a lot of other things as well. He is a lawyer. Although I don't think recovering. Yeah, I've practiced in many years. And a uh, little inside scoop here. He is a world famous camp counselor. I am. And uh, you and I share that history in common. That's right. That's where we met many years ago. Uh, we went to college together at Berkeley and we were both counselors at the Lair of the Bear summer camp uh, up in beautiful Pinecrest, California. Beautiful Pinecrest, California. Yeah. Maybe the only town in America without cell service. <laughs> Still. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we don't want to give away our secrets. But yes, we became friends many, many years ago, working in the mountains together and are lucky enough to still be friends to this day. So I appreciate Matt for coming on the show to really share all the secrets about news. So I I thought we were going to talk about the challenge for an hour. Okay. Yeah. We can also talk about the challenge. That's one other thing I meant to mention (laughs) is that Matt is not even a closet reality show junkie. Uh, He proudly waves that banner and the formerly known Real World Road Rules Challenge, now just the challenge, is it's not even a guilty pleasure. It's your number one show, right? Yeah, I mean, it's basically sports for me. You know, right. I'm not a huge sports fan. I do like the Dodgers, but I consider the challenge to be, you know, the, the best competition on television. Yeah, and I've heard people say it's the, what, fourth or fifth major sport? At this oh, point. yeah, and and they've been doing more seasons. Like, they, they come on pretty often now, and they have irregular favorites. They have some new people. They've introduced all these random people from Are You the One, which I'm not sure if that is an actual show or they made it up for the purposes of the challenge, but it's a, it's a, it's a pastime. It's basically America's pastime. Are you a challenge purist? Is that basically what you're getting at? Kind of. I mean, I would prefer if the challenge contestants um, stopped in the mid 2000s in terms of the, you know, the people they invite on the show. Like I like those original real world people and they were, they're always best. You know, CT, Bananas, Wes, Coral, Sarah, uh, Cara Maria. 
those those are like the they are my you know LeBron and Chris Paul and all the others like this is that is that is my uh, MVPs. I love that. I mm. love that. Um, what are the other big reality shows in your life? I'm a big Leah Remini fan. Um, I am sad it's over. That was just a seminal show from my perspective as someone in the industry who covers Hollywood. I've always been fascinated by Scientology. I've read all the books. Um, and and just to see her just stomp in there and blow the lid off that place and tell these amazingly sad and, and crazy stories. And she is such a compelling figure that you want to watch her. Um, it's just a total triumph. Was she just the first one who just had the platform and just didn't give a fuck? Basically. I mean, she, you know, you know, her whole split where she was, you know, she was one of the celebrities in the church. She was treated like royalty and she started asking questions and didn't like the answers that she was getting and wondered why the wife of the leader of the church had somehow just disappeared. No one talked about it and why there were random, you know, kind of slave like people working for Tom Cruise and making his motorcycles and, you know, throwing his birthday party. And all of a sudden, you know, she's out of the church and decides to do something about it. And I applaud her. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a um, courageous thing to take on the church like that. It's even more courageous to do it on a reality show because you don't know how it's going to play. And the fact that she won an Emmy and the show was a hit is, is a testament to her. How do you think, I mean, obviously it was spoken about in the news and Mm -hmm. it was sort of whispered about and this, that, the other, but how was it not taken just as a newsman yourself directly Mm -hmm. head on for all these years? The Church of Scientology? Well, for many years, they had a very aggressive litigation campaign against any media outlet that would dare challenge it. So they would just sue you and they would throw lawyers and discovery and all sorts of things at you to make sure that... Um, it would be a hassle for you to write about them. And only the outlets that could really afford to defend themselves would do it. Um, I really think what changed was the internet is once the internet came around and became popular and people were able to Google and figure out that there were people out there that had experienced the church, they weren't able to manage their message in the same way. Um, and then documentaries like Going Clear and the book Going Clear and the article of, on Paul Haggis in The New Yorker, all these things started coming about where the facade of the church that they worked so hard to put out there started to collapse. And so you mean the members could Google things? Yeah, members okay. and prospective members. You know, the, the Church of Scientology thrived on finding people on the street, bringing them in for a personality test or whatever they do and then converting them. And if you there's no information out there, you're getting all your information from someone who's recruiting you to be part of an organization like this, then you know, you're much more susceptible to it. If you're able to go home and say like, "Oh, what is this Church of Scientology?" and then you Google and you're like, "Whoa. Okay, maybe I'll watch this video of Leah Remini, someone I recognize. Maybe I'll, you know, read this article in the New Yorker and you realize that this is a, you know, pretty elaborate scheme. Uh, cooked up by a science fiction author to essentially, you know, monetize his science fiction methodologies. Um, it's it's all out there. You know, they, they used to be able to 
indoctrinate you and keep you rising on this ladder to reach the zenith of the organization to find out what the truth is and this you know Xenu story of the alien that came to earth in the volcanoes you can google that and figure out what Xenu is right now you don't have to go through a hundred thousand dollars of scientology training to figure out who Xenu is that's pretty devastating for an organization like that true or false though scientology played a role in your marriage uh, that is true only because i think it was the second or third date that i went on with my now wife i took her to the sunday brunch at the Scientology Celebrity Center in Hollywood, which I must say is delicious. <laughs> uh, it It is a full-on uh, brunch buffet for, I believe at the time it was like $20 with mimosas included. And it's an idyllic outdoor setting with music and you know birds and foliage everywhere. Um, and, and no I, internet access. And no internet access at or the no time. no Wi-Fi. Um, but yeah, no, I, uh, I was actually writing a, a review of it for Esquire magazine at the time. And I told her that we're going to go to the Scientology brunch and she was like, okay. And then I think we went to a Dodger game after, but, um, it was delicious. And she was like, okay, who is this guy? <laughs> I did not, I did not try to get her to join Scientology afterward. <laughs> well, you mentioned, obviously we're here to talk about news mm -hmm. you being of course with a hollywood reporter and you mentioned the challenges of reporting on some of these really big stories and litigation and i'm sure there's a lot of people that traffic in just gossip and and whatnot i mean what how do you see your role as a journalist today you know mm -hmm. and when you hear maybe whispers about big stories whether it's scientology whether it's harvey weinstein whether it's honestly anything somebody being mean to their staff Sure. When do you decide that something's newsworthy and you can chase it down versus this is just clickbait? This is not us. You know, how do you how do you determine what's what's news? I mean, it's a it's an ongoing discussion for us. We have a pretty specific editorial purview. You know, we cover the business of entertainment and things that people in the entertainment industry care about. Mm -hmm. That is a broad notion of what we cover. So that can be everything from you know, box office to moguls coming and going to ratings, to, you know, castings, to um, the intersection of Donald Trump and the media, to video games, to, you know, every everything under the sun. But we don't tend to traffic in um, things that are purely personal. And by that, I mean, like, we're not we're not chronicling, you know, feuds and Instagram beefs and things like that, that often. Now, sometimes we'll do it on the website, but for the most part, we have a prism of anything that impacts the arena of entertainment. Is there a thesis statement though? Because is, I mean, Chrissy Teigen and Donald Trump, that came out recently. Is that news? Yeah. Right? Because, I mean, when you have something like that with the president, where the, the president's interactions with the media and with the entertainment industry are newsworthy. I mean, you look at what the the public opinion on the news media is over the last two years, and it's in the toilet because every single day the president is talking about the fake news and how it's the enemy of the people. And he's praising Fox News. Then he's against Fox News. He thinks CNN is going out of business. CNN puts out a press release saying they've had record profits. Like, the president and his relationship to the news media is an absolutely a narrative that we cover. 
If he were not president, would that be newsworthy that he was getting in a fight no. with Chrissy Teigen? No. Not cover it. Who would care about Donald Trump if he wasn't president? I mean, he's not even on TV, or he wasn't on TV at the time that he ran. Um, you know, he's just a crackpot. Well, and for those of you keeping score at home, we mentioned Donald Trump before the 10-minute mark for the over <laughs> and also before Netflix. Right. So those were the oh, two that's, Yeah, the someone, two someone gets a prize. Yeah, exactly. I'll probably get an angry email from Netflix PR. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but, you know, okay, fake news, right? The, the, the word of the last few years, I guess that's actually two words. I mean... How, you know, you know, what is, how do you though compete when you are trying to not get viewers, get readers, get people to read your stories and, and subscribe to your magazine when you have less responsible journalists out there gobbling up stories, trying to beat you to the punch on things? Like, are you trying to get scoops or are you just trying oh, of to course. get detailed? No, we get, I mean, we break, we break dozens of stories a week. I mean, we, we are constantly breaking news. But and there are a ton of competitors out there that are legitimate and tons of competitors who don't adhere to the standards that we adhere to. And at the end of the day, you kind of have to rely on your brand and what is on brand for your brand and what is off brand. And it's not on brand for The Hollywood Reporter to just randomly report something that we haven't checked out. Um, you know, we don't we don't just uh blindly go with a tip we double check it and you know you got to believe that ultimately the brand benefits from that kind of diligence and because we do that kind of thing we are considered a certain type of brand that others want to work with whereas you know brands that don't do that are not the kinds of brands that typically get a lot of participation is there a story that you are particularly proud of from you know recent history I think are the way we handle the uh, situation with the former head of Warner Brothers. In January, February, we broke a story where the CEO of Warner Brothers was in a sexual relationship with an actress. And he was pushing for her to get jobs in the studio's movies. And we learned this because we got access to a trove of text messages between him and her and other people, including Brett Ratner and James Packer, two financiers at Warner Brothers. Um, there have been a lot of rumors about this executive, Kevin Sujahara, and his relationship with what many thought was uh, an actress who worked at the studio, but no one had ever written that. Um, and the way we got the tip, checked it out, confirmed it, wrote the story in a way that was, it was particularly sensitive because there were kind of no victims in this situation. Everything was consensual, what had happened, but it was arguably inappropriate. You know, you, we didn't make a judgment about whether it was inappropriate. We reported what happened. Ultimately, Warner Brothers decided it was inappropriate and he left the studio. Uh, but the way that we handled that against a lot of opposition from the studio and people that uh, I think in hindsight didn't handle themselves in the best way when we were, were working with them on the story, um, I'm, I'm proud of that one. Is that, I would imagine, to be a, that must be a huge challenge for you because 
ultimately these are also the people paying your bills, right? They're buying ads in your, you know, yeah, they, section. they're subscribing. I mean, they are, I mean, they, are, yeah, that's a, that's a balance that we, we walk, but, um, you know, but, but no one studio has that much power over us. And we don't, you know, you can't think that way. If you think that way, then you essentially seed the aggressive news operation to your competitors and it's a competitive space. And, you know, we just, you can't think about that. You know, ultimately it's not my job to sell advertising. It's my job to create a compelling product that people want to read and watch video and listen to audio and interact with on social media and, you know, all the other platforms that we're on. Um, and I think that by doing responsible and aggressive journalism, you enhance the brand to the point where brands and studios want to be a part of it. So you talked about the stories that you're proud of. Um, can we talk about the story maybe that got away? Weinstein, 100%. I mean, that is the elephant in the industry that was there for the taking for many, many years. And we actually pursued it. I mean, we had a whole team working on tips that we had gotten. We had heard about Rose McGowan. We had heard about Gwyneth Paltrow. We had heard about, you know, all these things that were sort of whispered about within the industry. And we were trying to confirm them. We had a, a whiteboard at one point in our office with a list of all of the women who had worked at the Weinstein Company and Miramax over the years. And we were calling them. We were trying to get people to go on the record and talk to us about what had happened to them. And we just were not able, despite all the resources that we had devoted to it, we weren't able to get people to go on the record. And I think it took outsiders to the industry to, and a brand like the New York Times, which is not considered an industry publication. I think people probably thought that, that being an industry publication, we wouldn't have been able to break that. And I think we would have if we had gotten participation. But I think it took a brand like the New York Times and the New Yorker um, to to get people to talk. And I remember when we heard that they were they had finally done it and that it was coming out. We actually broke the fact that the story was coming. We right. had heard that it small was coming victory. and that what yeah small victory very very small victory trust right. me. But we had heard that it was coming. And that the Harvey's lawyers were fighting with them and were like, oh, my God, is this actually going to happen? Is the Weinstein story going to actually come out? And, you know, everyone was buzzing. And then by the time it did, it was just like, boom, everything's changed. The whole industry has changed. The whole and we knew world. it and we knew it instantly. The whole we, world changed. Yeah. I mean, we knew the floodgates were going to open, that there were going to be other people named. We knew that this was going to bring down the company like we had we at one point in the weeks after the Weinstein story, we had, I think, 10 reporters just fielding different tips that came in and following up on different strands from this. And there were tons of stories that came about after this. I mean, it was a it was a reckoning like that is not a cliche. It was absolutely a reckoning. And was it really just the power of his lawyers that was preventing that story from being told? I think there were a number of things that kept it out of the public eye. I think the fact that um, people were so afraid of him and the power that he wielded and the perception of power that they were afraid to speak up. Um, there's, I think, as much as Hollywood is a liberal place, it really is a boy's town. It still is. It's less so now. But at the time, you know, two and a half years ago, it, it was really 
a boys town and people were afraid to speak up. I mean, we experienced that when we tried to get people to talk for that, <clears throat> for the Weinstein stuff. And I just think that there is there are lots of mechanisms in place to keep people silent. NDAs, uh, you know, different different settlements and lawyers and investigators and all sorts of things that that combine to create this culture of silence. Well, yeah, the world changed, and uh, we're obviously a whole lot better for the fact that. The New York Times did break it. I think so. I mean, we've been able to follow up with a number of different Me Too stories. I'm pretty proud of our Me Too coverage, um, and we've done it responsibly and vetted, and you know, done our done our homework on things. But we've broken a number of different allegations against different people, and um, we've done a nuanced look at some of the issues involved um, on both sides in terms of you know people. Uh, you know, who come forward for all sorts of different reasons, don't come forward, um, you know, different situations in the workplace where even two or three years ago, people wouldn't have even thought it was inappropriate. Doing responsible and aggressive journalism, you enhance the brand to the point where brands want to be a part of it. That sounds like a very different job than the one you took when you left the law world to become a journalist in what, 2006? 2006, I had been practicing as an entertainment litigator for five years. Um, and I was offered a job at The Hollywood Reporter running a legal vertical that would focus only on the law and how it intersected with entertainment. Um, I initially came in and I had a small staff to do that. And I ran that for a couple of years um, and got good attention and got did a lot of interesting work. But ultimately, they decided to fold that into the big Hollywood Reporter. Um, and then I got a job as an editor working under the big Hollywood Reporter and just kind of kept rising through the ranks. And that was also the time when Janice Min came in and really transformed what the magazine looked like. Yeah, we were bought in 2010. Um and they put a bunch of investment into the brand, um, brought in an editor from New York, Janice Min, who had worked in celebrity journalism and basically tasked her with taking a daily trade newspaper, which is what Hollywood Reporter was known for at that point. Um, we had a web presence, but it wasn't significant and figuring out what to do with it. And she came up with a very interesting concept, which was an elevated glossy weekly magazine that would highlight the talent and the executives in a way that hadn't really been done before in the industry. Um, beautiful photography, um, an elevated presence in, you know, in print design, style coverage, lifestyle coverage, um, and also a business component where there would be news and business analysis in a print product weekly. The daily print went away and we turned the website into a aggressive 24 seven news website um, that would be up to date and would be urgent and would be comprehensive for the industry and beyond. And essentially, take the access and the relationships that we had as The Hollywood Reporter and create a website that the industry would love, but also anyone who cared about entertainment would also be interested in that. 
do you have any sense of here we are now a decade later? Um, obviously, it's been a success uh, and obviously continued in your stewardship, but of how many people sort of touch and and experience the Hollywood Reporter as a tangible magazine versus you know, what you're getting online. Yeah. I mean, we know the numbers, you know, we have about a hundred thousand readers in print a week. You know, we have about 70,000 copies and they get, there's a high pass around rate. Um, but that's a, a small number compared to the, you know, 22 million unique visitors to the website each month, according to Comscore. So, you know, our, the majority of our audience is now online. Um, we have video products. We have a television series on the Sundance Network. We have audio podcasts. We have, um, you know, huge social footprints on all the platforms. You know, the brand has really grown since that transition. Uh, and since I've been editor, I've been editor about two and a half years. And we've really focused on growing a lot of these other platforms and, you know, increasing our social footprint, increasing our video product. Um, you know, because the print audience is great. We love it and it's, um, thriving and we actually have a very good print business and print currency, but the growth is digital. And that's where, you know, we really have seen a lot of the audience take off. Do you think that that, I would imagine for your competitors, they would probably be somewhat similar stories, but yours has got to be sort of best in class. I, I mean, I think so. I don't, you know, we, we are, uh, you know, it depends what you consider a competitor. That's the interesting thing is that because we, we compete in a lot of different arenas, you know, we compete for news with traditional trade quote unquote competitors. We compete with newspapers like New York times, LA times. We compete for what I call fan oriented news about shows and movies with outlets that are more fan oriented. We compete for cover subjects and photography and long form journalism with outlets like Vanity Fair or men's magazines or things like that. New York Times Magazine. We compete with, you know, every Joe Blow blogger in the world who thinks he has a scoop and wants to put it on his website. Um, you know, we're really competing in many, many different arenas all day long. No wonder you're tired. <laughs> it is a 24-7 job, but it's definitely a lot more fun and, and uh, definitely a lot more diverse than being a lawyer. Also a 24-7 job, though, last I checked. True, but people always joke, like my friends who are lawyers, like they say, oh, don't you love, you know, you're, you must have such better hours now. And it's like, no, it's way worse. It's the way more hours, but it's different, you know, like having a, a lunch with a source or with a executive is work or, you know, me going to an event or it's, it's just much more of a lifestyle type choice where, you know, I, I, this morning I, I moderated a panel at a, you know, digital media conference at eight 30 in the morning. And then I, you know, had lunch with, uh, executive and you know I, in the middle I was editing news and I was meeting with people and you know signing off on pages and layouts from the magazine and then I had a drink with an agent tonight because he was upset about some coverage that he didn't like and wanted a face-to-face -face. and you know things like that you have to be a brand ambassador as well as dealing with the nuts and bolts of the journalism we do and think about all the money you save on dry cleaning <laughs> actually probably not that much I mean 
I end up having to go to a lot more dress up events now than I ever did as a lawyer. Oh, that's a good point. But you did have to wear a suit and tie every day then. Mm, it was more business casual. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't in court every day um, or even that often. Um, I, I, I wear more ties now probably. Are you still active in the bar? I am inactive. I am inactive, which means I, I basically did it. My mom told me, you know, if you ever want to go back, just just stay in the bar, be inactive. So I could go back if I ever wanted. Got it. Got it. Right. You're still in good standing. You yes. just got to pay some back dues. Sure. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, I'll try not to get in trouble. <laughs> need representation. Um, well, let's talk a bit about industry trends. Sure. Right? Obviously, you have more insight into that than anyone. This is being a TV centric podcast. Mm-hmm. Certainly unscripted at the core of it, but TV in general, I mean, streaming wars, right? Mm -hmm. You've got Netflix, you've got Amazon, you've got so many new ones entering the marketplace. Quibi, you know, Apple, Warner. Don't forget Disney, Warner's, yeah, all of them. Of course, Disney Plus, right? I mean, it is just relentless. Who's going to win? Win? I mean, I think that the definition of winning is different for every company. I mean, if you look at Netflix, the definition of winning for them is they have to grow to a point where they have enough subscribers that they can justify this outrageous spend that they are doing on original content. Because slowly the traditional studios are going to take back their content that's been fueling the growth of Netflix over the past seven or eight years. And they're going to have to sink or swim on their own with their own content. And that's pretty scary for them. They've got to really, really ramp it up and, um, you know, get to a point where they are, they have enough subscribers to justify it, to justify what they're spending. There's one person that never gets mentioned, though, in this conversation Mm -hmm. about who's going to win the consumer. (laughs) I don't, I mean, I think the consumer is Netflix is really focused on their customer. I think they are. I mean, they know what their customer likes because they have, you know, endless data about what they're doing and they're trying to best serve that customer. I think, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a Netflix cheerleader by any means, but it's a great product and people really like it when they subscribe and they like it because there's new stuff on there all the time. Um, you know, the, you mentioned these, these others that are coming on board and I think they are less customer oriented and more about, salvaging a business model in a new paradigm you know these these companies like disney and comcast and warner they would not be doing this if not for the success of netflix netflix and to a lesser extent hulu and amazon i mean they basically just showed that the paradigm is changing and these other companies have to get on board or be left behind so they've kind of been backed into this and having to launch this. But that said, you know, Disney has a pretty compelling product. I mean, they have the best content and these very popular brands like Pixar and Marvel and Star Wars, National Geographic. You know, that's a pretty compelling offering, especially if you have small children like I do. And we are going to be launch subscribers to Disney Plus because all those Disney movies in one place for seven bucks a month. That's a pretty compelling offering. It's an insanely compelling offering. Um, do you see a future, though, where 
your streaming bill aggregates to just what your cable bill would have been? Sure. I mean, a lot has been written about that and how, you know, there will ultimately be a rebundling of these streaming services. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it's going to be a while before that happens because there's going to be a shakeout. I think that a lot of these, these services are all going to come on board. They're going to see how they take with consumers and then, you know, they'll either scramble to combine or to do a deal where there's a bundle or they won't. I mean, HBO and HBO Max, like they're thinking that this brand is going to be strong enough to be on its own. HBO is the, you know, grand poobah of programming and people currently pay 15 bucks a month to get HBO. It's the most expensive in the marketplace. And if they could add a bunch more shows onto it, maybe they can get people to pay three bucks more for HBO Max. And that'll be a huge profit driver. Maybe not. Maybe they'll spend a bunch of money on this content and people will be like, you know, I, I kind of like the HBO stuff. I don't really need a, you know, Gossip Girl remake, a Gossip Girl uh, reboot along with it. Um, but maybe they will. I mean, I, I don't I don't know the answer to that. I do think that there will be um, four or five, maybe six of these services that thrive. And then there will be some also rants. And also, you know, you mentioned a possible bundle down the line, whatever, theoretically, but what sort of agnostic company exists that would even control all that, that all these companies that probably don't think very highly of each other would all want to be in, you know, connected and... Well, you're seeing, you're seeing already that there are a couple companies that want to be the portal, so to speak, to sell a lot of different services. I mean, Amazon is a perfect example. You know, they have a very different business model because Amazon Prime is what they're selling, which is two day shipping or overnight shipping or whatever it is. And for 99 bucks or no, it's 129 now or something. Yeah. For 129 bucks, you get overnight shipping and you get this video product. They also want to sell you other video products like HBO, Showtime, other things. And they want to be the ecosystem through which all of your shopping, and that includes video, is done. Wait, Amazon wants to be our ecosystem for everything? It does. Shocker. I know. Wow. Is this a <laughs> news break? Yeah. Uh, but Apple would like the same. I mean, part of the interesting thing about Apple is that they price their products so low at five bucks a month, mostly because they don't have that much to offer. They only have a handful of shows at the beginning, but also because they're just trying to get people to stay within the Apple ecosystem, you get a year of Apple TV Plus for free if you buy a new iPhone. A lot of people upgrade their iPhone every time there's a new one. So they're going to get the Reese Witherspoon show for free. And they're going to see if, it, you know, if they like it for a year. And for Apple, that's great because they're keeping you within the Apple ecosystem. And that's what they want. They don't want you going elsewhere. And they're going to also sell other video platform, or other video services like HBO and Showtime and all these other, they want to be the place that you go and that you watch it all on an Apple TV on your smart TV. And it, it keeps you within the family, so to speak. Yeah. Now that I know exactly how many hours and minutes a day I'm on my iPhone, they, they do right. a good job of reminding me I know. how much I'm in their ecosystem. Yeah. And, and, you know, the people at Netflix talk about the attention economy and, you know, there's a Reed Hastings quote about how he's not really competing 
with HBO or NBC. He's competing with Sleep. Um, I think it was Reed Hastings who said that, or, or maybe Ted Sarandos. But they're competing with, it's just about attention. They want, they want Netflix to be so much a part of your life that you're turning it on and keeping it on and it just plays and you're watching, you know, three, four, five hours a night. Um, and all the other services are seeing that and they're like, we want in on that because we want a part of that. Well, Netflix has definitely replaced channel surfing. Um, it sounds like they want to just replace just background noise. Right. They also think they're competing with Fortnite, which is interesting because they're they're saying, okay, we're not just competing with television networks. We're competing with the entire entertainment ecosystem. Right. Well, and based on the email that went out from my daughter's uh, then fourth grade teacher, they're definitely competing with Fortnite. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 And, you know, and and I think all the other services are seeing what Netflix has accomplished in the in the uh, attention economy and they want in on that. Well, it's interesting, you know, launching this podcast, one thing I definitely noticed is that the beauty of podcasts is that you don't need my, you don't need eyes, right? So when people sample it, it's the thing I'm competing against is music and phone calls. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's when you drive to work, it's when you walk your dog, right. it's when you exercise. And so then you have this whole other category of things, which I know you're in as well with podcasts at THR, mm-hmm. of the attention when you're doing other things. Right. I mean, has podcasts been a, a decent part of your strategy? Yeah, we have we have a few podcasts. Um, we have one that is that does very well. It's called Awards Chatter, and we've done it for a few years now. And it's it, it's interesting because it exemplifies what THR does really well, which is we have unbelievable access to people. We can get most people within the entertainment industry to participate in our stories. So it's an interview podcast and it's done um, by Scott Feinberg, who is our awards columnist at THR. And uh, he has an incredible knack for getting people to participate. So he gets Oprah, George Clooney, Tom Hanks, you know, huge names. And for us, it's, it's an insightful conversation that goes from the beginning of their life all the way through their career. So you're going to learn, if you listen to the Oprah Awards Chatter podcast, you're going to learn everything there is to know about Oprah. And that's not for everybody, but for the people that it is for, there's an audience out there. And it's a great use of the podcast form because you've seen a million interviews with Oprah, but you've never heard her talk about her life for an hour. Right. And, you know, that's, to me, that's a good use of the format. Do you think that... uh the popularity of of your guest is really the key to getting a lot of hits on a podcast? I think so. I mean, fans tend to return because they like the host as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the podcasts that I like um, are podcasts that have personality to them. And it's not just about the guest. It's because you know you're going to get an interesting interview with that host. And it's a sensibility that you like. Um, you know, in terms of interview podcasts, I mean, I like other types of podcasts that are more narrative or music or whatever, but for an interview podcast, it's a mix of the guest plus the perspective of the host, I think. Right. And boy, are there a lot of choices out there now. There's a lot. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know that if I listen to Bill Simmons talking to Matt Damon, it's going to be a particular type of interview that I'm probably going to like. Mostly about Boston. Yeah, but sports and movies sure. and, you know, things that guys in their early 40s might care about. 
Um, whereas if I listen to some, you know, another interview podcast like Marin or, you know, one of the others, like it's going to be a different type of interview and you got to, you know, that's to me, that's how, that's the beauty of the podcast universe is that these interviews can go on as long as they want. It's not like the old days where if you liked a, a star, you watch them on a talk show and you'd get one segment, maybe two, and they're, you know, half of it is plugging their movie. And I've heard that for a lot of celebrities, right? That's one of the things they prefer as well. They get to actually ease in and some, I mean, I think some probably prefer plugging their movie and joking <laughs> for 15 minutes and then being done with it. But, you know, a lot of them do like having a more substantive conversation. Right. Well, I think we've had a pretty decent one here. <laughs> so, uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'm holding up to your standards here. <laughs> um, well, one thing, you know, I always lean into at the end of the interviews mm -hmm. is advice, right? And specifically advice to your younger self. To my younger self? Younger self. So mm -hmm. let's go back. 25-year-old Matt, uh, just out of law school, you probably don't want to wear that tie every day, as you mentioned earlier. I mean, did you have dreams of being a journalist? What? I mean, I know you I would actually, college. Yeah, I would actually go before that because for me, I was interested in journalism in college. I was an editor at my college newspaper, as you know, um, and I was choosing after college between going to law school and being a lawyer or diving right into media and working my way up in media. And I also knew I was interested in the entertainment industry and that I would probably move to LA. So, you know, for me, the big choice was whether I went to law school and I always tell people we, have, you know, I talk with our interns every semester. Um, you know, if there is anything else in the world that you would rather do than be a lawyer, do that because ultimately you're going to come back around to that after you have gone to law school and have started practicing and wonder and say, you know, maybe I should do that. Now it's weird for me to say that because if I followed my own advice, I would have never gone to law school and I would have never practiced. I would have never had my into getting into journalism through the legal Avenue. Um, but I often wonder if I had just, started in media right out of college, if I would have had the same path, you know, cause I essentially spent my twenties in school and working as a lawyer and didn't start as a journalist until I was 30. Um, and I actually liked my background for what I do now. I use my legal background all the time. You know, I am often in the middle, especially in the me too era where I'm often in the middle of legal situations where I'm evaluating you know, a story and the, and the news value of the story versus what an attorney for someone we're writing about might say, um, I'm working with our outside counsel a lot, our general counsel on different stories. So I, I use it all the time. Um, but I wonder if, you know, what if I had spent 10, you know, eight, 10 years working in media before I started, I don't know. Well, what about your advice for people? just straight out of college looking to get into media and looking to get into entertainment. I mean, one thing that I think I sort of inherently knew when I started was that this is not an old person's game, right? Eventually, and probably earlier than you realize, like, you know, there's not a lot of whatever 60 year olds running around. There's probably not even a lot of people in their fifties. I mean, do you think that, would you advise people to get into, into this field today? Or do you think it's just- Entertainment like, or, or media? Um, I guess let's, uh, yeah, well, let's talk about media because that's specific to yeah. you, right? I mean, journalism and all the challenges that it faces today, like 
you said don't become a lawyer unless that's the only thing you want to do. Would you say the same is true as, you know, being a reporter or being a journalist? Yeah, I, I would say that because, you know, I have always been fascinated by media. I've always been interested in the power of the media. Um, I would say it's a challenging career path to choose. There is no one answer. There's not a, you know, lockstep. Like you go to a law firm and eight years, you're a partner. It's not like that. And you really have to work your butt off um, and get some lucky breaks and be recognized for uh, doing good work and get, you know, and, and be at an outlet and a place where they will recognize you. And it's a really challenged industry. I mean, it's going through an insane transition right now. Um, and a lot of people believe it's doom and gloom and that, you know, the industry is so challenged that it, it's hard to do good work. And I understand that. But there is a lot of good work being done. And there's a lot of outlets that really do care about doing good work. Um, it's just a, the, the challenge is finding that and finding a place that will support you. And that's that's tough especially for younger journalists, you know, you want that mentorship, you want the opportunities, you want a place where you can get ahead and you're never going to get rich doing this. You just aren't, you have to, you have to understand that going into it and be willing to, uh, be willing to accept that. When I feel too, whether you're a blogger, whether you're a podcaster, whether you're a producer director, it's easier than ever to make things. It's harder than ever to get paid for them. <laughs> That's, right. pro that's probably true. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, but I remember when I was thinking about whether to leave practicing law to go into media, I figured, and it was a pay cut at the time, pretty major pay cut, but I said to myself, I'm probably ultimately going to be more successful in my career if I'm doing something that I am highly motivated to do and that I am excited to work hard at. And I knew that if I wanted to, I could chug along at my law firm, probably make partner, probably advance, and probably make a decent living for my entire career. But I looked at the partners at the law firm where I was working, and I didn't really want to be those guys for a variety of reasons. I hated billing hours. I hated to seeing them manage clients and manage expenses that, you know, and, and the whole process of, of being a partner at a law firm did not appeal to me. And I made the bet that ultimately if I were motivated and interested in what I was doing, I would be more successful. And here you are. Here I am. Or at least be not just, I guess, the metric for success, right? Yeah, sure. I mean, more, you know, content, feeling better about the contribution you're making. Totally. I mean, I always thought I would, I would go to the Hollywood Reporter and I would have to leave and move to New York after a couple of years because that's where, you know, the real media powers were. Um, I sort of lucked out that my outlet that I went to got bought and a big investment was put in it and they the ambition level went way up and it became a leader in its category and gave me opportunities to do more ambitious journalism and to manage a staff and to learn what it meant to put out an award-winning magazine and to build an audience online. And I had a great mentor relationship with Janice where I really learned how to run a weekly magazine and a staff. Um, 
And those are all things that I never would have thought possible when I went to The Hollywood Reporter in 2006. Uh, I thought I'd be in New York doing media at some point. Um, but it's been a nice ride. Is broadcast and sort of massive, huge audience, is that dead? You know, do you feel like, and I know broadcast people think about television, but you're talking about The Hollywood Reporter and mm -hmm. you've got 100,000 you know, readers, but then millions online. I mean, do these small, I don't want to say small because it's not small, but smaller successes really matter? Or, you know, do, maybe I'm not framing this question the right way, but like, can you ever have a thing that everyone in the world's going to read anymore or everyone in the world's going to watch anymore? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in terms of journalism, this, the, the platform has 100% been leveled. Um, the, I'm sorry, the playing field has been leveled. And on any given day, any outlet in the world can have the biggest story in the world. And if you think back, and I had never worked in journalism pre-internet. I, you know, we went to college together. Like I, by the time I got into journalism, I, it was an internet enabled world. But before the internet, if you worked in an outlet like the Hollywood Reporter, the chances are that, that no one in the real world would ever read or consume what you do. And, and I imagine that would, would have been hard for people. And, and consequently, you saw people who would start their careers at smaller outlets eventually move up and get to a national or international outlet where they could finally get an, a big audience. But now it really doesn't matter where you are. As long as you're able to do good work, you can have hugely influential reporting and and uh, writing that comes from a smaller outlet. Look what happened with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, that was a, a story that was 100% broken by the Miami Herald, a regional newspaper that became a national platform for this story because they had an intrepid reporter and they and she just didn't give up the story and and you know brought it to a national audience. And any any day of the week, we are competing at at THR with so-called you know, national outlets like New York Times or, you know, Wall Street Journal or whatever. And that has completely changed over the past 15 years. Um, and that's why it's 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 the kind of thing where if you're doing good work and you are happy where you are, you don't really have to leave. Well, you seem very happy where you are and you're doing great work. And we all thank you for it. <laughs> Last question. Yeah. This is a bit of a hypothetical because one of the options isn't actually possible, but what would give you more joy? The Dodgers winning the World Series or Cal football winning the national championship? Oh, wow. Great question. Um, well, the Dodgers winning the World Series seems like a more plausible <laughs> reality um, just because they've been the last two years. So that seems like something that is like kind of within grasp. Cal winning the national championship, uh, I think a lot of things would have to happen in the world before that happens. I would settle for a Rose Bowl, to be honest. Or even just an appearance. Or just an appearance in the Rose Bowl. Uh, but it would be, if for some reason Cal went on some, you know, incredible run, I think that would probably be the most satisfying. All right. Well, go Bears. Yes. Go Dodgers. Yes. And thank you, Matt. Thank you. All right. So there you have it. The true story of The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thank you as well to our guests, 
Matt Bellany, and to my wonderful family for all of their help and support. Also, please do subscribe to Exec Producer wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at EP with NP. And since collaboration is at the heart of this project, I'd love to hear from you, the listeners. Please reach out with what you liked, what you didn't like, and any ideas for future episodes. So thank you again for listening, and please come back next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>